Let's, let's pray together. Father, the whole day I've been weighted down by the thought of Shane and Misty and those girls and what they're facing, what First Southern Del City is going through as a church. Father, I pray, especially for Misty and the girls right now, how hard this is for them in these last last hours, last couple of days they have uh, with the dad and the husband, God. Thank you for the testimony that they have given to so many about the way that you have sustained them through this. Uh, Shane preaching last summer at the, the national convention and talking about all he had in life that mattered was Jesus. God, thank you for that, that testimony, Father. And we mourn with them. Um, in times like this, all the incidental things in life definitely fade away, and it makes us focus on what really matters, and we need to all learn from that, me especially. God, I pray for the people here at Emmaus who have situations going on in their families, uh, family that's far away or friends that are far away that we want to be able to help, and we're just not able to in the ways we want. God, we pray for those in our church that are facing uh, surgeries and procedures coming up, Father, that you would sustain them and that they would use every opportunity uh, to tell people about your love and to tell people about the hope uh, that, that we have in Christ. And God, we know when we pray at times like this that we know that you're at work in ways we can't see. And so we pray trusting you, God, praying, asking that you would open our eyes to see clearly the things that matter, see clearly what we need to give our focus to and what we need to do, that you would give wisdom where we need wisdom. We pray for our team that's going to Calgary for uh, the first service of Multiply Church. God, help us to know how to continue to minister to, to that church there and that you would give, uh, give them grace and favor with the people there in South Calgary. And Father, I pray that tonight, uh, as we think about Ash Wednesday and we think about the preparation for Easter, God, that you would prepare our hearts for, for what you want to do, not only in our lives individually, but in our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'd like to take your Bible and open to Joshua 24, we're going to make the transition we're going to make the transition from Joshua to Judges tonight, and in the process, uh, talk about the season of Lent and Ash Wednesday. How many, how many today saw someone with the imposition of ashes on their forehead? Anybody? Couple, okay. I was about to. I was about to get concerned. I mean, it does reflect where we live. Uh, that 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 would not be as prominent. If you would ask me that question a couple of years ago, I would have told you almost everybody I saw uh, had that. So, on Ash Wednesday, especially in areas that are predominantly Catholic, uh, the imposition of ashes on the forehead at the beginning of Lent. We'll talk about that later on about the kind of the meaning behind that, but. In New Orleans and then where we lived on the coast of Mississippi, uh, very strong Catholic populations. And so you saw, you saw a lot of that. But it's not just Catholic traditions. Uh, if you grew up Methodist, Lutheran, um, there are even uh, some more free 
Protestant churches, Baptist churches that are doing uh, imposition of ashes, and we'll kind of we'll get into that. I was just curious though um, if if you'd run into that or seen that. the uh, The morning begins in New Orleans because the season of king cake is over now. Uh, if you've ever seen the king cakes, they're those rounded cinnamon roll style cakes that have the green and purple and yellow on there for the Mardi Gras colors. Uh, at midnight of Fat Tuesday, the New Orleans Police Department comes down Bourbon Street and begins to clean out the uh, traffic, and, and that begins the beginning of Lent in New Orleans. And so it was always a very symbolic time. All this revelry, all this party that had gone, gone on during Mardi Gras, all the eating of king cake. If you ever get a king cake, watch out, because somewhere in the king cake is a little plastic baby. Uh, and if you get the piece of the king cake that has the baby in it, then you have to bring the next king cake to the next party uh, is the way that, that that works. And so there's this little little plastic baby in there. There's supposed to be some religious symbolism related to baby Jesus, but it's a real, it's a stretch to get there. Uh, the, the AAA baseball team in New Orleans that I was a chaplain for for a while, that AAA baseball team, they were called the Zephyrs for a long time. Well, they changed their name a couple of years ago to the New Orleans Baby Cakes. That's actually the name of, of the AAA baseball team there in New Orleans is the New Orleans Baby Cakes based on these king cakes that are sold. You can get them anytime, but symbolically you're not supposed to really eat them after, uh, after Ash Wednesday, after Lent begins. You probably have seen a lot more fish commercials on TV, especially your traditional fast food places. I saw one from Arby's the other night. They have their fish commercials come back out. You'll see McDonald's. In traditional Catholic settings, during Lent, you eat fish when? Fridays. Yeah, so Fish Fridays is the it's supposed to be you don't eat meat, you eat fish on Fridays. It's a, it's a form of fasting. I don't know that that counts as fasting. I'm not sure in what, what book that counts as fasting. But in New Orleans, you would go down the road, and there would be fish fries on Friday all over the place. Uh, churches would host these huge fish fries that you could go to. So, so for us Baptist kids at the seminary, it was a good time of year. You just Every Friday, you knew you were going to have fried fish somewhere, uh, somewhere in New Orleans. So it wasn't, wasn't such a bad thing. All those things that are wrapped around the season of Lent, Nash Wednesday, what's the purpose of that? Well, the way we're going to go about it is we're going to start in Joshua 24. We're going to do Judges 1 to keep that part of our study going. And then we're going to talk specific, excuse me, specifically some more about Lent and, uh, and Nash Wednesday. Okay, here we go, Joshua 24. We, we did some of this last week, but I wanted to go back over it. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, 
And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Okay, you're going to find this multiple times in the Old Testament. We've already seen it in Joshua. You see it in the book of Psalms. The, the biblical author will rehearse the history for the people. We'll go back over these key events, just telling them again, taking you back through the story again. This is, this is important. It'll become important even later when we talk about Lent and Ash Wednesday. But notice that he starts the story with God's grace of rescuing the people out of sin and rebellion. So when God calls Abraham, remember that Abraham is not an upstanding guy when God calls him out of this, out of this land. It says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, that they served other gods. But then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. The reason that's going to become a key idea is what happens to them when they get into the promised land, what becomes their downfall? What do they start to do? They start to serve other gods. And so he's reminding the people, what I've already done is rescued you from that. So if I rescued you from that, why would you go back to that? Why would you go back and serve those gods if I've, if I've taken you from there? Verse 6 of chapter 24. So they, they're down in Egypt at this point. So then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. So again, another rescue. God rescued his people from idolatry. Then they were in Egypt, a place that was known for idolatry and false gods. He rescues them again out of that situation, brings them into the promised land. Verse 8, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They, this is the east side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he even blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. End of verse 10. <laughs> Again, I delivered you. This is the idea that the God who saves his people continues to save his people. Talking of old hymns, uh, the old False Creek hymn, Save, Save, Saved. Uh, that God saved us in the past, he's saving us now, and he'll save us in the future. That ongoing salvation of God, salvation is not merely a one-time event in the Christian life. That God continues to be at work, bringing his people into the fullness. The New Testament will talk about it in the sense of working out your salvation, experiencing all that God has for us in salvation. And so we have to be careful that we don't, is salvation something that happens at a beginning point. Yes, there is. There's a time that you turn from sin and trust in the Lord, but God's work of salvation for his people doesn't stop there. It, it's this ongoing work. You get down to verse 11, and you went over the Jordan. Sounds so simple, but we know there's a lot more to getting over the Jordan at that point. And you came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. So again, you've been delivered from all these enemies. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I give you a land on which you had not labored, 
and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Uh, Joshua 24, 13 is one of those verses that it's important for us to go back to from time to time, remembering that everything we have comes from God, that we have salvation because of him, and he continues to provide everything we need. And you can take verse 13, and you can apply it to your own life pretty quickly. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. Everything that we have comes from God. This is his common grace to the world. He causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every good and perfect gift, James 117, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. There's no changing, no deviation in what he does. You can trust him. Everything we have comes from him. And so verse 13, God is reminding them, what I've done, it was my work. You did not accomplish this on your own power. Then verse 14, now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Everything we have is from God. Everything we have is for God. So we give ourselves fully to him. What do you do? You put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and you serve the Lord. If you realize God's rescued you, and you realize he's provided everything you need, what's the, what's the response to that? What do you do in response to that? You say, I'm going to serve him completely. I'm going to get away every other God out of here because he alone is worthy of my worship. So they've come to this point. 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, then one of the most famous portions of scripture, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How many of you have, uh, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord sign up somewhere in your house? Yeah, I remember, uh, I've seen those in many places. I feel like we even had one of those in the house I had uh, growing up. We were, my son, uh, our nine-year-old, he was, he was at home sick yesterday, and Amanda had her homeschool co-op that she was running, so I was at home with him yesterday, and we went back and forth between watching the Olympics and these videos that these guys do. They're called the Dude Perfect videos. Has anybody ever watched the Dude Perfect videos? They're these guys on YouTube that do all these trick shots with basketball. They're great Christian guys, uh, and they do these trick shots and, and uh, have some really funny videos, and so we were watching those, and in the back of one of the videos, as I was trying to prepare for tonight and watch YouTube with my son, uh, this verse showed up that these guys in their house said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord as they're making these YouTube videos. Um, but it's one of those phrases that you see all over the place. You walk into someone's home, you walk into an office, and you see this, this type of phrasing. Here's something that people often don't notice. Just before that, when he's talking to the people, he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, so if this is not what you're going to do, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river. What's he reaching back to there? It looks like he's reaching back to the Abraham story. Because earlier here, and I think it was back in verse 3, no, back in verse 2, we've already been told how Abraham was taken out of this area where they served other gods. So he says, if you're going to go back there, 
to those gods where Abraham came from, or maybe in the region of Egypt, but almost surely in, in Abraham's home. You can serve those gods, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell now. Here's the contrast he's giving them. If you're not going to serve the Lord, you can ever either serve the old gods that you came from, or you can serve the new gods that you're finding what option does he not give them? Not to serve any God. That's not an option. <laughs> he says, you're going to serve someone. Uh, and and it's so, we're so tempted, and, and you'll hear this from people, well, I don't worship anyone, or I don't worship anything, or I don't serve anyone, or I don't serve anything. You can let that conversation develop with someone. I don't think you have to just cut them off immediately. But at the core, once that conversation goes very far, at the core, the reality is every one of us worships something. Every one of us serves someone. And so Joshua is not going to let them get off. Well, I don't want to serve the God of Israel, so I'm just not going to serve anyone. No, you're going to serve someone. <laughs> Either you're going to go back to the gods you came from, or you're going to find new gods to worship, or you're going to serve the God of Israel. There's not a neutral in between that you can say, well, I just don't worship anyone, or I don't serve anything. There's an interesting reference. I think I printed this on your booklet there. But John chapter 6, uh, Jesus in John chapter 6, it's, it should be on the front page there under point B, or uh, number one, Roman numeral point B. Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the disciples church growth strategies. A whole bunch of people are following Jesus, and so he says really offensive things, and a whole bunch of people leave. Uh, that's generally how it went for Jesus. A lot of people would start to follow him, and he would say something hard, and a bunch of people would leave. Uh, and so that's happening here. And he says, after this, many of his disciples turned back, in verse 6, and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? There's a little bit of a connection there maybe with this Joshua 24 idea. Are you going to leave? What, are you going to go serve another guy? Simon Peter answered him. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, there's nowhere else for me to go. I'm not going back to the past, and there's nothing new that could provide what you provide. You are the one that we're going to stick with. It's that idea that's being communicated in Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You provide life. You provide salvation. You provide everything we need. What happens after that? Joshua 24, verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and along, among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Verse 19, Joshua said, that's great. No, he didn't. He says something really remarkable. Verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you 
after having done you good. Whoa. Uh, that's kind of the way that Jesus would respond to people when they started following after him, just wanting to see his miracles, just wanting what they could give him, but really not committing their lives to him. He would say something hard like that, and many of them would turn and go away. What he's getting at here is you on your own strength for your own purposes will never be able to serve the Lord. The only way that you will be able to serve the Lord is if you realize he is all you have. So there's no, I'm going to give part of myself to the Lord, and I'm going to give part of myself to these other gods. It's really, he's calling them to an all or nothing type salvation. We realize the danger of this in modern day church shows up in, I don't like this phrase particularly well, but it's the one we use sometimes, easy believism. This idea that, hey, if you want to be a Christian, raise your hand, say these words, sign this card, look, you're a Christian. There's a danger in that, that we're not truly saying what you have done is you have repented of your sins, of living for yourself, and you have said, I'm giving myself completely to the Lord. Now, there's a lot of learning, there's a lot of growth that happens there, but it's not, I'm going to keep my life as it is, but I also like to sign up for the Jesus card as well. It just doesn't work that way in, in Scripture. It just doesn't work that way in Christianity, and so I say that meaning we need to give people room to learn. There's, every one of us, every day of our lives, finds a new God hiding under our heart that we didn't know was already there, and we're trying to get rid of and, and say, no, I've given myself to the Lord. But we don't want to tell somebody up front. We don't want to bait and switch someone. We don't want to say, hey, just come, believe in Jesus, everything's going to be okay, and then later on said, oh, actually, you gave up your whole life when you did that. We just forgot to tell you that up, up front. We don't want to do that. We have to say, no, we're calling someone to commit their life completely uh, to the Lord, even especially talking to people in baptism uh, about this idea. We've been talking to some of our, our, our kids about baptism and saying, when you're baptized is a way of saying, I have turned my back completely on the way of living for myself, and I'm giving myself completely to the Lord. I'm immersing myself in, in his life, and so I've turned away from this other way. This is the idea that's coming across here. Okay, let's finish up Joshua 24, and then we're going we're gonna to transition. So 21, so we're in verse 21. The people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. They said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said, the Lord our God we will serve, his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness, shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord, that he spoke, of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man into its inheritance. Now, we wish at the end of Joshua, the next book was about how the people lived completely for the Lord in the promised land. <laughs> well, the next book is Judges. Uh, and so as you turn over to Judges chapter 1, and you flip there in your phone, we're going to go through Judges on Wednesday night into the month, month of May. 
continue to work through this book. And if Joshua is rated PG-13, Judges is rated R. <laughs> like, Judges is, Judges is intense. Uh, much more than the people really giving themselves fully to the Lord, the book of Judges looks like the middle uh, Genesis chapters 4 to 9 where things just completely fall apart. The people become more and more evil. They continue to turn themselves away from the Lord. The question is, how does that happen? Well, it happens because they lose sight of that commitment, that covenant that they made here at the end of Joshua um, 24. So let's look how Judges starts. Judges starts in a confusing way, so I want to make sure we don't, get, we don't get off on the wrong foot. Here's something you have to pick up here. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands, into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother. Okay, I know we don't have the map in front of us, but Simeon was the brother who had the piece of land inside Judah's land. So Judah's land was in the southwest part of the promised land, and Simeon got stuck with the little set of land inside that. I, I think I forgot to mention this the other night, but the best analogy is the country of Lesotho that is inside South Africa. If you look at the very southern tip of Africa, you'll see the country of South Africa. Inside of South Africa is a small landlocked country called Lesotho. Uh, and we actually have some friends that are missionaries there, or otherwise I would not know that piece of geography uh, to be able to tell you that. But it, it's a piece of land, a country that is landlocked inside of another country. And so very similar to how Simeon got a piece of land inside Judah's land. Uh, verse 4, Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued, pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now that's a very, uh, how do you say it? That's the PG-13 part of Judges. It gets a lot worse than that. But uh, cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. You see God's justice at work through these conquests that, that are happening. Uh, and if you ever are stuck teaching an eighth grade boy's Sunday school class and you don't know what to do, you can't go wrong with Judges chapter 1. Uh, because... At that point, you have them. Like, <laughs> there's nothing harder than teaching a junior high boy Sunday school class, but ju Judges 1 is, is your way out uh, to be able to do that. So, uh, verse 8, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron and they defeated Shashai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, 
He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Okay, let me stop there for just a second. As you start to read from here, really down to verse 21, and, and for that matter, all the way down to verse 36, if you've been through some of the Joshua study, what you're going to find really quickly is, wait, haven't I heard this story already before? It's because you've already heard the story before. Here's what seems to happen in the book of Judges. If you go back to verse 1, it says, after the death of Joshua. Then, if you'll look in chapter 2, down to verse 8. So chapter 2 of Judges, verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. The author introduces the death of Joshua in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. Most likely, the way that books worked in the ancient world is the first line of a book functioned as the title of that book, oftentimes. Um, and so... The author of Judges has introduced the death of Joshua, but then tells a whole bunch of stories that happened while Joshua was alive. Then Joshua dies again in chapter 2, verse 8. And what happens is, if you just read it straight through, it sounds like the stories in chapter 1 happened after Joshua died, because he's listed as dying in verse 1. When actually verse 1 was just an introductory comment to get the book started, then it told stories from the life of Joshua. Then he actually dies when you get over to, to chapter 2 that we'll look at more next, next week. So it's, it's easy to get caught off when obviously you see that in verse 1 and then all these stories that you've already read about happen again. Just wanted to make sure you weren't, uh, you weren't thrown off by that part. Okay, let's jump down to verse 22 of chapter 1. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. This is its name to this day. What story does that immediately remind you of? Does it, does it remind you of anything from the book of Joshua? Rahab, yeah. It sounds like Joshua chapter 2, the Rahab story, where Rahab works out a way to get the spies safely into and out of, out of the city. Here's the difference, though, and, and this is so fascinating. This tells you the difference between the book of Joshua and the book of Judges and how the two books are going to develop. In the book of Joshua, what happens to Rahab? What does Rahab do as a result of her interaction with the spies, just generally, not, not in detail, but what does she do? What's her life like after she interacts with the spies? She's saved, yeah. In, in our words, we would say she's saved. She becomes a worshiper of the God of Israel. She 
makes these proclamations that sound very much like that. That's, that's a key point. So Rahab's spy story is at the beginning of the book of Joshua. She worships the Lord, and that in a sense sets the tone for kind of where that book is going to go. Judges, you have another spy story where spies are let in. But notice what happens. Verse 25 of, of Judges 1. He showed them the way into the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name what? Luz. Look back in verse 23. The house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. The name of that city was formerly Luz. This guy interacts with the spies, and what does he do? He doesn't become a worshiper of the God of Israel. He just moves down the road, reinstitutes a city as a neighbor to the Israelites. Do you see the difference? In Joshua, Rahab, for all intents and purposes, becomes a worshiper of the God of Israel. In Judges, old guy's name here that we don't know, uh, the spy, he didn't become a worshiper of the God of Israel. He just moves his God, his city, down the road and starts over again. And this will become a marker that causes the people so much trouble in Judges. That they are trying to live alongside these other gods without ever having this call to holiness or this call to worship. And all these little cities that continue to exist will end up distracting them away from serving the Lord. And so this guy becomes a thorn in their side. Now, to know that that's what has happened here, look what happens very next in verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them. 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon. 32, so the Asherites lived among them, Canaanites. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth um, They became forced labor for them. 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ejelon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subjected to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. You get the point? <laughs> over and over again, the people go in to establish their land, and they don't drive them out completely. And so they find themselves mingling with being alongside people that are serving other gods. When this was exactly what they were told not to do when they went in to take, take the promised land. They're set in this situation where they haven't given themselves fully. They haven't gotten rid of other gods. And these other gods are going to end up overtaking them uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Going back to Joshua. When was the last time we saw the phrase angel of the Lord? Do you remember the angel of the Lord reference in Joshua? It's a little bit obscure, but 
Remember when the angel of the Lord appeared in Joshua? So he shows up to Joshua with a flaming sword after the uh, crossing of, of the Jordan, and he says, are you for us or against us? And you find out, wrong question. <laughs> and then he bows down and worships because he realizes that he's in presence of the Lord. This angel of the Lord is back now in Judges, and he's going to actually show up a couple of other times in Judges. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt. That's an interesting reference. I brought you up from Egypt. So whoever this angel of the Lord is, is coming as a direct messenger of Yahweh, that this is the power of God among them. Uh, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim. The word Bochim means weepers, people who weep. Um, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They realized uh, the mistake they've made. Now what we don't know, and it's hard to pick up from this, did they sacrifice to the Lord here as a sign of complete repentance and commitment to him? Or did they sacrifice to the Lord just desperate that maybe they could hold off the trouble that was coming? And I think I put on your notes, uh, possibly, a reference to 2 Corinthians. This would be under Roman numeral 2, point C. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's always good to remember when we're dealing with sin and repentance that there are two, times, two types of sorry. Uh, those of you who are parents, grandparents, take ki care of kids on a regular basis, you know there are two kinds of sorry. <laughs> there's sorry I got caught, and then there's I'm really deeply sorry, and I don't want that to characterize my life. 2 Corinthians 7 characterizes that as worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow is a deep repentance that says, I do not want that to characterize my life. Would you make me clean? Because of the lives that the people live after this, you get the feeling that their sacrifice here in Judges 2 was more of a worldly sorrow. They were just trying to do religious observance to get this angel of the Lord not to kill them at that moment. They don't have any signs of godly sorrow that, that come after this. This idea of repentance and sacrifice leads us into talking about Lent and, and leading up to, to Easter. So why are we making a big deal about Ash Wednesday, Lent? What's this all about? Well, the way that this works is you're not going to go to your New Testament and find Ash Wednesday or Lent. And so it's definitely not an obligation or duty of the Christian life uh, in, in any sense. But, but here's how it's become helpful in, in church life. In the early days of the church, when people were preparing to be baptized, 
often they were asked to go through a period of fasting before their baptism. Uh, And then fasting began to catch on in different times of the church. And one of those times was the preparation for Easter. As they began to work out the days, the number 40 became very significant because of Jesus' 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and his battles with temptation. Uh, And so 40 days of fasting became a somewhat significant, significant idea. They began to try to place where these 40 days of fasting would happen. It, it took a long time in church history to develop. When you get to the 6th century, you get to a, a guy named Gregory the Great, and he's the one that seems to have driven a lot of the imposition of ashes uh, from, from dushes, dust you have come to dust you will turn, uh, you will return, that idea of our humanity. And so that's where some of that began. The way you get the 40 is you start on Ash Wednesday, you go 40 days ahead. <laughs> you count out 40 days, but you don't count the Sundays between Ash Wednesday and Easter. And that will ultimately lead you up to Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. Lent is often approached as a time of fasting. It's a time of spiritual preparation, preparing your heart for Easter. Just like we practice Advent so Christmas doesn't sneak up on us, We practice Lent so Easter doesn't sneak up on us. Lent is a time of repentance. It's a time of preparing your heart and your mind for Easter. It's a time of remembering what Jesus has done for us, of suffering, of his suffering for us and our suffering for him, of what he's done for us and what we won't want to do for him. And so what it functions as in the Christian church is just this period of spiritual renewal this period of spiritual focusing leading up to Easter. People participate in Lent in a lot of different ways. Some people will fast. Uh, Some people will eat fish on Fridays. Once again, I'm not sure what kind of, you know, how that that falls in in the world of fasting. Uh, People will give up caffeine. They'll give up chocolate. They'll give up sugar. They'll give up all kinds of different things. Maybe they'll pick one day a week or one meal per week to fast from. So fasting is one of the ways uh, that we prepare for Easter. It's a way of saying less is more, that the things that I think I need, I really don't need as much as I think I need them. What I really need is to experience the power of God in my life. I really need to focus on the Lord. And so fasting is one of those ways that people do that. Equally so, the time of Lent is also a time of giving and serving. Some people say, I can't fast, or, or I don't feel like fasting is what I'm going to do, but to prepare my heart for Easter, I'm going to give in a way that I haven't given before. I'm going to serve people in a way that I haven't served before. Um, if you're on dietary restrictions, especially related to medicine, uh, don't fast from food. That's going to cause your, your health situation uh, to get worse. If you're just worried about having a headache if you don't eat, well, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, that comes with it sometimes. And so there are right ways and wrong ways to, to approach this. Here's, here's what I would want you to do. Do something to prepare your heart for Easter. Now, as Christians, we live on the other side of Easter. So we live in the victory of Easter. But one of the gifts we have is the calendar that takes us through every year remembering 
what Christ has done for us. We have Advent that prepares us for the birth of Christ. We have Lent that prepares us for the death of Christ. We have the season of Pentecost that talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. After Pentecost in the church calendar is what's called ordinary time. Ordinary time goes from May and wraps around to the next December. And ordinary time is just every Thursday that you live in your life. It's just how do you live as a Christian during ordinary time? So the Christian calendar goes from Advent, which is Christmas, Lent, which is Easter, Pentecost, which leads up to the day of Pentecost, celebrating the coming of the Spirit, and then ordinary time. And every year, you live through that revolution, through that cycle. Jesus came, he died, he sent the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit is especially helpful on Thursdays when I don't want to go to work or love my family, and I live through ordinary time, and then I wrap back around to and do it all over again. For me, someone who didn't grow up with a church calendar idea or living through these seasons, that's probably where it's been most helpful for me. Every day of our lives, we live in the victory of Easter. But it's good to have a period of time to prepare our hearts for Easter. So what I want us to do tonight in wrapping up for the last five minutes is we have two responsive readings and a favorite old hymn to wrap up with. These responsive readings are times of confession, and so I'd ask you to enter this as a time of personal prayer, personal confession. If you haven't participated in responsive readings before, I read the light, you read the dark, bold print, if it's underlined, we read it together. Let's enter this as a time of confession, preparing our hearts for Lent, preparing our hearts leading up to Easter, and then Paul's going to lead us in that, that final hymn here in just a moment. Here's what it says on that inside uh, of that centerfold. All our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives, our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our exploitation of others, our anger at our own frustration, and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves, our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts and our dishonesty in daily life and work, our negligence in prayer and worship and our failure to commend the faith that is in us, for the wrongs we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from us, for our waste and pollution of your creation, and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Accomplish in us the work of your salvation, that we may show forth your glory in the world. And then Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment.
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. 